Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Tonight, we welcome back GamesBeat's Assistant Deputy Tactician for the West Coast, Rowan Kaiser. Good morning. We also welcome back our friend, freelance writer, Ian Boudreaux. Hello. And finally, we're joined once again by Kotaku's Heather Alexandra. Hello, friends. And uh, we've brought this squad together for an important (laughs) mission. A discussion of one of the defining strategy subgenres of our era, the tactical management game. Uh, Rowan, this is a topic you've been kicking around in your head and uh, over late night IMs for a while. So let's talk a little bit about what we mean here and why the term is both like more specific and yet less confining than just saying XCOM-alike. <laughs> yeah, uh, so this is, you know, sort of like the the podcast we did a year ago on survival strategy where we look at like these new-ish or suddenly popular genres that has popped up in strategy games um and that one we spent a lot of time like going over the history of like where this genre came from and all the combinations of like roguelikes and the sims and all those things that went into it and this one uh that answer is actually super simple it's that Firaxis rebooted XCOM in 2012 XCOM was really good and XCOM was really popular and a bunch of people have made games built on XCOM uh but uh, as you apply, there are like some sort of different ways that you can look at the term XCOM-like, which has been sort of the go-to terminology that people have used to, uh, you know, describe these kinds of games. And I think there are, there are two different directions that you can go with that. The first is like the the form of how XCOM combat works, where you have the like half cover, full cover, two move system. Um, something like Mario plus Rabbids has that, uh, but that's not necessarily the thing we're talking about. Like as I talked about on that show, I would say that's more of an RPG with a very strong tactical combat engine. Uh, the other XCOM like that we're talking about today, and is uh, I think more popular and like more meaningful as a subgenre to discuss is the uh, tactical management game, which is based on the sort of structure of XCOM, where you have uh, a strong system of tactical combat, however that system works. Uh, we're going to be talking about Darkest Dungeon, which is totally different from the cover system that XCOM has. Um, and the management side of things is that you have like a bunch of procedurally generated characters that you are, you know, kind of building up and putting down and, you know, getting rid of or promoting. Um, and then there's also like a base building or a sort of headquarters aspect to it. So there's a it, like a strategic element that you're also building up across the course of the game as you have, you know, these people come in and die and then you replace them and so on. Uh, so, like, the big games in this are obviously XCOM, Darkest Dungeon, uh, Battletech, um, uh, Battle Brothers, which we, we were very fond of for, like, three weeks. Um, and I still am fond of it. I just I, oh, have I mean, reservations. We were just obsessed with it for three weeks, is what, yeah. what I meant. And then uh, something like Into the Breach, Massive Chalice, games like this uh, are, are very much definitely in this. And we could talk a little about, a bit about edge cases and such, too. Um, but I think that definitionally, uh, the idea is fairly simple. When we talk about tactics games, we talk about games that have like cerebral combat based on movement. Um, or cerebral challenges. Not all of these games have combat, which... Uh, mm-hmm. a little uh, spoiler preview for you all um, mm. 
but like the the idea that position movement uh turn order all those things are absolutely essential is uh a major component of them and the management side is that you know you have a bunch of different moving parts outside of the the tactical area that are also important and you know the balance between that and the tactical side is one of the major things to discuss um uh, going back to the history a little bit, one thing that I sort of realized after I'd put together this little speech is that there's another game from 2012 that I think is also very important for kind of the history of how these games got super popular, because not everyone has for access money. Um, and that game is FTL, which is a you know strategic hmm. roguelike that had a lot of tactics-like decisions. You know, it's very light on the actual combat aspect, but positioning your characters is an essential part of that and that game is you know much smaller budget but it's still sold well over a million copies i think uh so that became you know a, a model that strategic game designers could use was the idea that you could have the sort of fast-paced roguelike relative to the you know 40-hour strategy epic um and also the roguelike aspect here is important because you have a bunch of these games with procedural elements with permadeath um not all of them have all of these things, but uh, yeah, that's those are sort of the key elements of the genre to be discussed and some of the major questions to begin with. I guess to you know sort of lead this off, I'm just curious to get a sense of of the room. Um, <clears throat> if you had to choose, like if you know if, if we view this as like there's a there's a balance here between like the amount of management you have to do and like tweaking your squad lineups and equipping equipping them and managing whatever operation uh in the metagame you're you're trying to run versus like maneuvering people out on the battlefield or the battlefield equivalent uh which like what what's the what's the ratio there that that gets that that really works for people like do people incline more toward the like the tactics side or do people really want that marriage of like management and then like seeing the fruits of your management bear out in 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 a tactics layer so i might be somebody who falls to a very specific spectrum in the sense that i would really lopsided it in the sense that i would probably want like 70% of the small like moment to moment tactical decision stuff with only like 30 of the spreadsheet management research trees and traits and upgrades and stuff but i think it i think that kind of really just depends on who you are like i'm an intuitive person i'm not a very logical person i want to act i want to do things and there are certain games that really facilitate that but then there are also other ones that bog you down with a lot of like I don't I don't like doing research in games. I don't like having to choose between like, hey, you have like so many points to make this rocket launcher or make sure that you have whatever you need for the next mission. I that totally freaks me out. So yeah, I, I think I, I you don't want to lose that uh that tactical layer though. I and I agree with uh with with you, Heather, kind of like you know, I I, I you want to um I think like you want to spend enough time in that enrichment side, the, you know, that kind of career guidance side. And really what I was thinking about when, um, you know, Rowan, you brought this up was this is kind of the non-commissioned officer simulator genre, maybe where you're basically being a sergeant and you have to make sure that uh, uh, your, your soldiers are, are fed and clothed and they, that they're moving, you know, their careers in the right direction. Um, and what, what the tactical layer winds up being is kind of like a proof of whether or not you're 
your guidance is has been good. So, Ian, um, I assure you, the way I play, I am a <laughs> freshly minted second lieutenant in these games. That is, okay. I, am, yeah. I am an I am an OCS ninety day. These are OCS ninety day wonder uh, simulators. Yeah, for yeah. Me. The, the laminated maps, uh, not knowing where you're going. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I, that's man. That's a very specific and vivid uh, <laughs> <laughs> image there, Rob. Um, so this. This question, I think, is one that leads directly to the difficulty question, which mm-hmm. I find, as those who have listened to our Battletech and XCOM and so on podcasts, know is one of the big ones that I go with. I'm interested in like teasing out of this genre because um, Darkest Dungeon, I think, is my favorite of all of these. Um, and Darkest Dungeon is like 80-90% tactics and very little actual like behind the scenes management and that's in large part because you can't win the game or you can't win or lose the game on the strategic layer at all like it's entirely you know no pressure whereas in XCOM the strategic lever layer is very high pressure and i think this leads to some of the biggest flaws of XCOM um something like BattleTech is a nice you know halfway between the two but figuring out like where the game fits uh what exactly the game wants this area of challenge to be? Does the game want to be this super high-pressure strategic decision-making thing where you are in charge of everything and it will all burn down? Or are you, like Rob says, uh, or like you said, Ian, uh, the kind of, you know, just managing your little squad and sort of figuring out how uh, those things go along? And, like, if the game manages to commit to either of those really well... Uh, I think that it, it can be great in all the cases, but a lot of these games kind of struggle because, you know, one of my big theories about games that we've talked about on this, especially with Total War games, I think, is that when you divide a game into two halves, you have to really prioritize the one that you say, this is definitely the really good part of this, and make that work. And then everything else is kind of like, you know, it's a it's a topping. It's gravy. Um and like most of these focus on the tactics end, but some of them have enough of a strategic layer that they start to run in, into problems. Hmm. It's interesting, like think, thinking about that, I'm trying to think of there are games that have really invested heavily in both sides. Cause I agree with what you're saying, Rowan, but then I think about like, well, my favorite like total war maybe of all time is like Shogun two or like follow the samurai, uh, which is basically just, Shogun 2, but a slightly tweaked setting. Uh, but that's a case where I feel like there's a much ha- there's enough happening in both layers that they end up feeding into each other in really positive ways. But that balance is so hard to strike. And a lot of times it is even fleeting over the course of a playthrough uh, that you probably are better off focusing on one at the, at the expense of the other. Um, but I think the I mean, other... Sorry, I was just gonna, I was going to say I, I I'm not sure you can even not, not to rush through all the uh, all the topics you've outlined here, but I I think this question even is inseparable from the like how is this game meant to be played? Like, is it an Iron Man like you have to just like absorb your mistakes and your bad luck, or is it sort of tuned for a little experimentation, a little forgiveness via reloads? And I think there are quite a few games that have sort of tried to have it both ways, but I'm not sure how compatible those goals are, especially when you've got an overarching campaign structure. 
it needs to make sense for, I think, the setting and the story that you want to tell, right? We think of difficulty sometimes in these cases as something that's just about balancing the raw mechanics of a game, but that's, difficulty is also a narrative tool in the sense that you know, there are moments I've had in Battletech where we're, you know, they were some of the most frustrating, harsh, brutal, and bloody moments I've ever had. But that's a story that wants to think about those things. And it's a setting that emphasizes how breakable and how sort of fragile, not just like you, you know, your mechs are, but kind of just like the broad mortality of your troops are. But if I'm playing massive chalice the the big thing about massive chalice is more lineage and keeping you know families together and groups and stuff so i so massive chalice chalice is not as difficult right and you you modulate that depending on sort of what you want your gameplay to do narratively as well as just making sure that it's fun to play i mean that that's part of it too yeah, the, the idea of the failure state is really important here. Something like Battletech um, or the XCOM Long War mods. These are sort of designed to say, no, some of these are going to fail. And you need to, part of the strategic decision making or tactical decision making that you may have to do is, how do I get the hell out of here as soon as I can? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's a really interesting addition that um, also complicates the whole question of, you know, what is the kind of goal and meaning and difficulty of the game and how all those things combine. I think that that knife edge of difficulty uh, has to be placed. And I think where, uh, where it has to be placed is, is such that you're constantly thinking about the humanity of the people that are involved. Uh, I think that's kind of like the, the common thread through these, these games is that you're, uh, worried you're you're really invested in the outcome of these procedurally generated fake soldiers who don't exist uh and um and and your decisions are going to either uh be what 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 lets them live or die uh so so wherever the difficulty needs to be placed i think you know as long as you're constantly thinking you've got mortality on your mind i think that's the that's what has to be achieved by however hard or you know uh, forgiving the game is you can't feel safe at all i think in a tactics i think that's perfectly put yeah i think there's like for me i also think there's a bit of a balance of like should the game be concerned about mortality as a binary or like frailty as a continuum right because like i get discouraged from games where it's like, oh, you made one mistake, and because of the way this game is structured, like that one mistake, you are going to get wiped out hard here, um, which is very much so. <laughs> like XCOM, in yep. addition to like the way its difficulty can take like massive steps up, particularly with some of the um, story events that happen over the course of that campaign, where it's like, oh, there's a giant frost snake now running around that's going to, like, fuck your squad up, and it breaks all the rules of the game that you've been taught. Uh, good luck with that. It comes out of nowhere. Uh, so stuff like that can happen, and when that happens, it's not the sort of game where usually if something goes wrong, somebody's going to escape and just get hurt. Uh, probably someone is going to die. And it'll be a miracle if you if you manage to prevent that from happening. But I do think some of the ways that I've been more satisfied with just sort of, again, taking my lumps, sort of playing it as it lays, um, 
you know, you, you mentioned Battletech, Heather, and that is a game where there's a lot of degrees of how badly can things go, right? Like, did it go badly in that, you know, your your mech went down, but the pilot was safe? Did it go badly in the sense that the mech survived, but you actually absorbed so much damage, the mission is a net loss for your company? Um, did the mech come through okay, but a decent pilot just got blown out of their cockpit? That's a lot of, th- those are interesting outcomes. I think Battle Brothers is a similar way. Battle Brothers is kind of about the fragility and endurance of your soldiers, right? Like, it is a game where you can win the fight, but there's people who now have, like, uh, you know, a broken leg that is never going to be right, and they're always going to be less mobile than they were in that battle. They're always going to... They're blinded in one eye. They are never going to not have a penalty for that old wound. That is going to be a part of them moving forward. And I think that is... Those systems encourage, they at least encourage me to take that, right? Like that becomes, that gets folded into my story. It's not like XCOM's, ha-ha, you screwed up, eat it. It's more of a, this is, this is the way this, this, game, this, this world works. This is, this is the game, is making the best of things. And I think this sort of leads to an ideal of, yes, these games should be Iron Man, but a lot of these games individually should not. Um, that's sort of where I come down on that specific question. A Darkest Dungeon is built to be Iron Man all the way up. Like, it is, you, if you fail, you fail, and that's okay because, like, there's not this pressure that's going to ruin your 50 hour campaign. You are going to have a setback. Whereas XCOM, um, there are many, many cases in that game where going one square too far in one direction leads to a squatty getting headshot and instantly dead, and that leads to you not being able to complete that mission, which leads to a sort of just continually spiraling out of control uh, situation where 10 hours later you realize that that one moment cost you the entire game. Thanks, Austin. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, yeah, so I I can't play XCOM on Iron Man. I try with Bronze Man, um, which is where you uh, can reload the individual mission mm-hmm. from the start, but uh, you don't like reload each individual turn. Um, but even that, by the end of the game, I usually end up tossing it out. I mean, I still love XCOM. We're going to talk some shit about it structurally because it it sort of deserves it. But uh, the e- structure of these games encourages an Iron Man ideal that they don't always live up to. And I think Battle Brothers is the perfect example of that because Battle Brothers is kind of a mess as a game. Um, It's an interesting mess, uh, but it's not one that I want to sit down and think about, here are the best ways to abuse this system. It's a game that I switch it to Iron Man and I'm like, this is a blast, man. I'm going to fail miserably the first time I run into a vampire and that is so cool. Uh, so, like, that's a game that I only play on Iron Man, so it's kind of the reverse of XCOM and, you know, these these sort of distinctions become interesting. I feel like there's a little bit of tension, like, I'm not even sure all these games as a matter of principle should be played Iron Man. Like, I think that, well... Let me put it another way. I think there's a lot of games that would probably benefit from having somebody have who admitted early that maybe Iron Man was not something that they should like tune for and 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 try to accomplish. 
because I like I I think even the the ambiguity can cause issues for you'll be playing a game and you're halfway through the campaign and you realize it doesn't feel quite right. That's kind of what I hit with playing Battle Brothers, not Iron Man, is I started to realize that the game got progressively less interesting uh, as I was sort of able to fix mistakes because it was really mistakes that generated interesting scenarios in that game. Um, but yeah, I, I I just tend to be skeptical of the... It, it almost feels like a... A genre requirement or, or or like a convention where where everyone's pretending like yeah this is for it's it's the hardcore gamer phenomenon right of like uh you know this is this is for serious tactics gamers there's an iron man mode and there's so many of these games i look at and i'm like is that really making life better like darkest dungeon man like yes it's built for that and yes it's not going to like destroy your campaign but come on you haven't like felt your spirit completely shattered to the point where you just basically abandon a campaign after like two back-to-back missions go wrong and wipe out your all your best adventurers because i certainly have like rage quit in, Rob, in the wake I of those ex- scenarios I, I live to have my spirit crushed I, oh man and i would i would argue that like crushing your spirit is kind of the whole point of darkest dungeon too like i mean <laughs> the whole game is kind of about those injuries and persistent scars i mean it's I feel it's very capricious and, and and maybe a little bit too random, but the whole like the the concept is that like the more time you spend down here, the more screwed up you're going to get. Um, and uh, I think that uh, you know uh, my quibbles about the way that these you know this, these uh, the stress uh, related injuries kind of happen aside, I feel like that's the whole that's. Like Darkest Dungeon kind of makes that its focus is this like you're going to okay fine yeah you're going to go down to the gun- dungeon you're going to find some stuff but it's at a very steep cost. Um, I remember when I I think I saw Tyler Sigmund from Red Hook talk about Darkest Dungeon at GDC. He basically said straight up that one of the goals was like. Not necessarily one of the goals, but when he would watch streamers playing it, and like they would have a party wipe, and they would be like, "Fuck this, I'm done with this, turn it off." But they'd come back the next day, he'd be like, "That's what I want." Yeah. Well, it shows. Um, yeah. <laughs> Is that virtuous? Um, <laughs> But I mean, in that case, well done. But I mean, like, yes, it's this is a case of, you know, what exactly is this game pushing for? And I feel like Darkest Dungeon largely succeeds with what it's pushing for up until the actual Darkest Dungeon itself, which I think is uh, a bit too much at that. But um, something like Battletech is built around the idea of uh, the attrition. Um, and there are aspects of it that, you know, you and I have both noticed are, it doesn't do the attrition well, and like their first expansion, they're going to add the things that are going to make attrition more relevant from mission, from, uh, mission to mission, uh, with two-part missions and uh, uh, gear, missions where you have to take like your light and your medium max because there's like a, a weight requirement or whatever I think I saw. But anyway, all these things that were like, okay, you know, all these things that we have wanted to force the idea of this being a battle of attrition where you 
need to do the best you can despite a bunch of little things going wrong as opposed to huge disasters. Like, that's what Battletech wants to be. A Battletech would be really great for an Iron Man type of thing, except for, you know, some of the huge difficulty quirks that we talked about in, you know, that show. Um, it has some major spikes that will kind of fuck you up, but, uh, you know, it's built around this idea of attrition and it does it very well, regardless of whether it does the full Iron Man or not. And yes, there is a lot of that, you know, true gamers only play on Iron Man. And in many cases that's bullshit, but like darkest dungeon is the most forgiving of these at the strategic layer because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's built for that. And I think all these things combined, I I repeated myself like six times there, but yeah, that's an important point. Yeah. I, think the um but i also think maybe some room should be left for the player to express how they want to play like i so like a thing i'm going through with battletech a little bit is um i'm thinking about different ways i'm going to play through the campaign again uh because i'm like there's some things that there there's some things I want to mitigate. Like I definitely abused the fact that you can just like sit around and repair all your good mechs and do another mission and stick to your your game plan of choice. Uh and that can start to feel a little confining over the over the course of a campaign. So but there are ways that like you can you you, you it is a game that I think lends itself to setting yourself different goals or or house rules right like you can you can really choose how much you want to test yourself in battletech uh both in choosing mission difficulty but then also in like how much downtime do you give yourself between missions right like are you going to wait for your best two mech warriors and your best two mechs to get fully healed and repaired or are you just going to see if you can do this next difficult mission with whatever you got lying around um and I kind of like games that, I don't know, maybe this is a sign of me getting old and weak and tired and just wanting comfortable gaming in some ways. But I like that I like that Battletech is a game where in the same campaign, I can set myself those moments where I'm fully invested, I'm going to be measuring every single move. Or it can also be a game where I just kick back and I'm watching you know, the NBA playoffs while I just do missions in Battletech and sort of half pay attention to it. I like being able to flex between those two, uh, those two modes. I think it's a matter of, for as malleable, I think the genre of tactics can be in terms of what it can present or how it kind of handles the raw choreography of combat, right? Because that's a big like aspect yeah. of tactics games is just, this is a game about choreography. This is a game about how you move. Um, tactics games do have a problem very often in the ways that they sometimes if like maybe if there's a ranking system or something, the way that they actually impose certain values upon the player by how they actually value your performance in certain ways. I'm thinking about this a lot because I just had to review Valkyria Chronicles 4. And at the end of that, they always give you a rank at the end of the mission, but that's based upon essentially how quickly you can get it done, which means it tries to incentivize. So in that case, like if you're aware of that, you, you have a bunch of scouts. Scout rushing has been a big thing in this franchise for a long time, and you just 
rush forward, try and get to the base that you need to capture or whatever you have to do. And that's that. And then you can get your good rank and get more experience or whatever. And sure, you can push back against that and play on your own terms, but it doesn't end up working as well. So I think you're onto something in the sense that tactics games, and I have no clue how to approach it from a design standpoint, could find ways to facilitate you know, the ways that players can express themselves more. Uh, with Battletech, it's weird because that, that usually ends up boiling down to like the equipment that's actually viable, mm-hmm. right? So what am I loading, like what am I loading up with? Like tons of lasers and heat sinks and stuff or whatever. I'm not gonna shoot, I'm not gonna put like a machine gun on something. I mean, I could, but like, I don't know why I would. Um, and I think that's just a problem that's endemic to like, designing a thing at all like there's there's always weird things that that don't balance out i think the ways that developers want it's just more noticeable in tactics because they tend to seriously affect the ways that players can actually um in a viable and meaningful way actually go about things on the battlefield regarding that choreography thing i just have quite again just trying to get a sense of the room because that that reminds me of something do y'all like having all your favorite toys and being able to like, yeah, just like treat it almost as a choreographed dance where you are, it, how well can you use your, the tools you have, you've customized and familiarized yourself with and, and learn to use to the maximum versus like, how much do you like it when a game pushes you into suboptimal scenarios right how how often do you like when a game basically okay like find situations and basically kneecaps you for them and you have well, to improvise fir- sorry i was speaking for a second too um i was gonna say just because i got excited for a second the first one like that's what makes into the breach so exciting i think yeah. for a lot of people because it emphasizes that a lot and i think in a lot of ways that's more approachable and understandable especially for people who want to just get into the genre itself um a game like that really emphasizes like, hey, focus on movement because it just tells you how things are going to play out and you're solving a puzzle. And the more that you obfuscate things, the trickier it gets and the more you can't reliably kind of carry out the choreography, right? It's sort of like, I don't like training wheels is not the point of reference I want to go to because I think that (laughs) Into the Breach can be terribly difficult and all sorts of things can go wrong but it, it is a very it is a game that's very honest and open about what's going to happen in ways that other things aren't and i think that makes it more exciting to like yeah have have the toys that you want to play with and then just focus on what you can do with them i do like the uh the, the, the sort of uh satisfaction delayed kind of feeling of always wanting uh to have like your ideal loadout and being kind of denied it it's that wonderful Donald Rumsfeld quote about going to war with the army you have instead of the one that you uh, want. Good in a game. Good in a game. Good in a game. <laughs> Bad is foreign policy. Uh, yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, so I, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I find the most rewarding about this uh, whole genre is the idea that I'm going in with a plan that's kind of held together with duct tape and bailing wire and somehow making it through. Um, 
Well, on the other hand, I, th- I think what uh, Heather said is really great too. I, I, I really am a, uh, into the breach is such a rewarding experience because there is a correct way to do this. It's figuring out a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that you have the uh, you know the means uh, at your disposal to uh, complete it, um, and and working that out is is incredibly rewarding. But um, something I kind of like about uh, you know the other side of that coin is the uh, uh, the 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 sensation you get of maybe this isn't going to work out and maybe it can't. I mean, I I think most listeners know that I am one thousand billion percent on the side of make me hold things together with the string and duct tape. Like, um, time for the 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 uh, screwball to throw here. Uh, one of the things, like, in putting together this concept of the subgenre and the list of games that, you know, influence it and go along with it, that I have realized is that this includes sports management games. Um, sports management games have a bunch of characters who become procedurally generated over time, though they usually start with the real ones, but there's hundreds of them, or thousands even. Um, sports management games are built on positioning and movement. Uh, you you define like what positions your players are in uh then depending on you know what sport or what game it is you can control their movement or all that and then um there's also like a headquarters that you build up which is the team itself uh you you know trade for new players you make sure that your finances are in order all those things um so i have been you know on a football manager binge again since the world cup and I love nothing more than when my players start getting injured and I have to, you know, figure out desperately what positions I can play the half of my team that I have remaining that doesn't quite work out, that doesn't quite fit, but this is the only way I can have them to create something resembling a soccer team that will be reasonably competent, that I can have my best players on the field without it being a total disaster tactically. Um, and like wow, look at Bill Belichick, Mr. Next Man Up over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is also how I play Crusader Kings. Like, if Crusader Kings isn't falling apart, Crusader Kings is boring. Um, and this is what I wanted out of BattleTech the whole time. BattleTech, I wanted to have, you know, something that would pressure me not to just sit on my stupid little spaceship and wait for my very best mechs and pilots to repair for three months. Um, like give me give me a reason to have to like freak out and really desperately grab my attention. Doesn't have to be all the time. It shouldn't be all the time. Like pacing is important. Sometimes these things should be easy. Sometimes they should be hard. Um, that you should be ready to switch between both modes. But yeah, like, and I think Into the Breach is like an interesting example because it is super accessible and it does seem like it gives you those tools. But it's most interesting when it gives you those. Pos- positions where you have to try as your decisions like do i sacrifice three buildings this turn or do i like go all in so that my pilots are going to die or almost die or whatever or you know it it creates those decisions at kind of a micro level regularly um that it doesn't not is not quite at the macro level that some of the other games in this genre have but it it gets to that point and that's when it's at its best in my opinion so yeah it's uh uh there should be like a tightrope to disaster that's forcing you to gamble i think gambling is a very important idea here uh 
th- these are the games that you want to have to gamble on. I think we like there are a lot of games that don't in some ways it's almost more instructive sometimes to look at the games that don't quite land for whatever reason. Like uh, last week on the show, we talked about Phantom Doctrine, uh, which is like comes really, really close. I think to being the, the, the kind of, the kind of game I want, but it ends up. There is nowhere near enough differentiation among the units for one thing, like, or the mission types. And so Phantom Doctrine becomes a game that has tons of the, the, the stuff I tend to think I enjoy a lot. A lot of the investing in the team, uh, you know, building up resources. And the game even finds ways to push you into uh, some tricky corners by being a game that encourages you to stretch yourself thin and sort of react very quickly to things. But it just doesn't end up working particularly well in part because I think it's leaning heavily on like a procedural uh, mission generator and layout generator that doesn't quite uh, work brilliantly. But the other aspect of it is just that the pieces you're moving around never feel particularly interesting. It's, it's, it's a, it's a funny thing, but like there has to be a cool factor that comes from the tools you're employing or else the whole thing will feel a little bit flat. Like Phantom Doctrine is a game where, you know, you start the game, you've got like guys running around with Kalashnikovs and they shoot people and Hey, what do you know? People die. And then later in the game, you've got a different assault rifle or, or, or you're carrying around an Uzi. It still feels like the same thing. Like there's all this flavor, but nothing feels differentiated it always feels like you're fundamentally doing the same things and the tools you're using to do it and the character abilities you're using to do it don't really play much of a part and so i think there's there's an aspect of you need a bit of like flashiness the tactics themselves have to be flashy at points it's either the cool stuff that comes along with, uh, you know, technology upgrades or what have you, or, uh, or, or sort of the the sort of sunk cost you have emotionally having, uh, you know, history with these characters and seeing that reflected in gameplay. And I think that's why, you know, the the uh, stress injuries and and quirks that you pick up in Darkest Dungeon are are such a, a an interesting idea. Um, you know, your your newbies in that game are sort of disposable and you, you, you know, but this, uh, you know, level five um, a crusader with the, you know, he's got uh, syphilis and he's kind of cranky. I mean, like he's that way because. Uh, well, because uh, of the it, syphilis. That would yeah of course you get kind of cranky about that and uh you know and also the time that he spent in the dungeon with you so uh so i think that like you you want kind of both right like you, you need to see uh you know your troops um develop and and change over the course of time like the the either they've they've gained experience and and uh and and thereby are granted new abilities or or access to new technology or they've been injured and that means something uh, uh, that is reflected in the tactics you have available to you i uh, kind of like rowan was saying with his uh, uh football team 
Uh, Rowan, you you added a note here uh, where I just I just saw you adding a note that this feels like the most mechanically overt uh, genre, which I don't know, does it? Because like a lot of your grand strategy games just cover themselves in numbers and foreground that stuff. Uh, what what makes the what makes this feel more on the nose than that? Well, I mean, I think the, the game to mention here is Endless Legend, right? We've talked about this many times. Endless Legend is a grand strategy game. It's got a lot of numbers. It's very confusing how those numbers actually work, but Endless Legend is still fucking awesome. Like, it's it's a game that is a wonderful experience. And, you know, Civilization Five and Six are even like this to some extent. Um, they're Yes, there are tons of numbers, and yes, you could work on them in maxing, but you can also just sort of play them to play them. Uh, and like once you figure out the difficulty that works for you, which is a major issue, don't get me wrong, but um, it's still sort of a personally inclined difficulty. Um, whereas these games, like it feels like every single potential tweak is an area that the game could fall apart on, and it's largely based on difficulty or numbers or whatever. So, like a game like XCOM Two, um, we talk about you know how your characters can get one shotted fairly easily. Well, what if you add in a mod that gives them inherent armor? Um, then they'll get one shot a little less. How does that change the game? Like these things are like very much on the surface as how we interact with the game um some of these games that like i haven't gotten into or have struggled with various aspects of them like battle brothers in the late game uh just sort of gets all your characters to be kind of samey as opposed to the ragtag bunch of misfits like why does that happen? Because the way its progression system goes is, you know, very linear. If the progression system was slightly different and slightly less based on how how great the armor you owned was, then that game would have a very different endgame. And these things feel very on the surface for every kind of decision. With Battletech, like, let's say that the maintenance fees for your mechs were doubled. Like, just instantly you can figure out how that would change how you're playing the game, right? Uh, these things always seem to be directly on the surface. They're often moddable. These are some of the most moddable games that we have around. Um, I think that's super important, and that's it makes sense because of the just overt nature of how, how tinkerable these games are. One of the other things that I kind of going back to that going back to that point real quick actually um I find it interesting the degree to which you emphasize mods in your experience of them like I tend to undermod my games cuz I tend to be lazy and I have uh, I have a mayfly's attention so I'm just like constantly sort of hopping to the next vanilla experience uh but I am kind of interested in this this the way that like this mechanically like these games are very constructed. They are very like mechanically not like convoluted might be the wrong wrong word, but they like there's a lot of pieces that all work together in tandem. And yet the genre lends itself so readily to all these people like sort of getting in there and mucking around with the systems and tuning and tweaking them and creating 
different versions of these same ta- same tactics games that become almost canonical in some ways, right? Like the sheer number of people, not just you, Rowan, who have like told me, you know, well, actually, like XCOM's your like Long War is your XCOM game. Uh, you know, that's where it's at. It's interesting to me that like this genre lends itself so much to that when I'm not sure I've ever seen a mod become like the definitive way to play a Civ game, for instance, or even a oh, Total War game. Oh, let's talk about uh, Rise and Fall of Civilization, Rob. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, so, yeah. The- like that that was like how I played Civ Four, and Civ Four is my favorite in the series in large part because it facilitated that. Also, Rome Total Realism did become that for many, many people. Um so th- there is one Total War example. That I question definitely fits. there. Yeah. No, it, it really, really did. Mm, uh, did it? Yes. Extremely. Mm, are you sure? <laughs> like a billion trillion percent. I'm gonna just keep adding to my percentages here. Uh but yeah, the the modability is helpful because at a certain level, like we've talked about the the sort of personal narrative. Ian mentioned this, where like we want to care about these characters, and if the game feels like it's getting in the way of caring about the characters, then we want something that will help us get back to that caring. Like I mentioned, the, the XCOM uh, uh, mods, like one of the big ones for XCOM 2 that came out almost immediately was getting rid of the timers on uh, the missions or adding like four turns to the timers on the missions because those could be ridiculous at first and like people still like the idea of those timers but they were causing people to die all the time and disrupting the flow of the game um, so like you you get these you get a very strong element of people saying, all right, this one particular component of this game could use a tweak, and I can actually read it. I can see this game, I see the numbers, I see where the convoluted things are, and I think I can solve this problem at a personal level for myself and just say, yes, giving every character in XCOM 2 one point of armor will make me enjoy this game a lot more. Uh, and I'm interested if any of you have played these games with major modding. If I do anything like that, it's sometimes to just change the broader setting or set dressing to put it into a context that I can initially understand. Um, this is going to be a weird example, and it's not really tactics, but yeah. the way the way the way the way that I was able to understand Crusader Kings two was like to put that into like a Game of Thrones mod, so I could understand the relationships between certain nations and then i could apply that later on to like hey now i'm going to take over ireland in in ck2 or something sometimes if you put something into the right context and mods can do that then you can afterwards pull back from that and embrace kind of the chaos as it was originally meant to be or or things like that or at least that's what i find with mods i'm not somebody who focuses as much with the niceties or, or, or the intricacies of, of raw mechanics in certain ways. Cause, cause I just kind of let that stuff roll for me. It's, it's a matter of, is there, is there a campaign that can help me understand what I, what I maybe need to do um, and then go back and apply that knowledge to the, the game kind of as, as the developers maybe wanted me to. I'm uh, normally a giant chicken when it comes to mods, uh, mostly because I kind of feel like uh, 
um, there's sort of this unspoken agreement that you have with the developers of a uh, tactics game that, okay, things are going to mostly go according to plan. And once you introduce mods, all of a sudden you're watching Italian horror and, uh, you know, anything could probably happen to the, you know, the, the dog might uh, have you know, injury happen at I some point. I feel like there's a really <laughs> specific reference that I'm not getting here. <laughs> uh, Gates of Hell okay. uh, is the movie that I'm thinking of. But uh, anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, the exception would be um, Mountain Blade uh, Warband, uh, which I think there's sort of a definitive, going back to the sort of like, is there a, a particular way to play this game? I think the Floris mod pack is kind of um, the agreed upon, like, here's how you should play Mountain Blade. Um, but and, and that just it changes things and, and it, it, it does such a uh, overhaul on the way that information is uh, made available to you in the game uh, and the way that the game flows that I, I, I don't think I've ever actually played Mountain Blade without uh, the Floris mod pack. Uh, Mountain Blade is a sparks enough frame that does invite being draped in all sorts of uh, <laughs> different does. different themes, uh, which <laughs> certainly seems to be the. In fact, overall direction uh, of that series, unfortunately, like the last footage I saw in the upcoming game, I'm like, all the time. Yeah, yeah, that sure looks familiar. Um, regarding, but, sorry, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what Heather said before we get on to the yeah. next thing. Uh, yeah, aesthetic mods are also important here because part of the procedural generation and character customization of these games is a thing that helps you get into you know, caring about these characters and you care about them in the way that, you know, whatever seems to work for getting that caring going. And, you know, that can be spending a hundred hours changing a hundred characters in XCOM 2 into the X-Men and then uploading (laughs) that to Steam, which is a thing that I did the day it came (laughs) out pretty much. Um, Like... The games also invite these strategies, personal subjective strategies of figuring out how to care about these characters. And this is why uh, when I, I made a list of like edge cases here, the first game that I put on the list of edge cases is Battlestar Galactica Deadlock, because that is a game that we've, we've talked about and generally like here. Uh, but... Um, and it fits the idea, like there's a very much a tactical combat side, and there's very much a strategic side, and you can sort of customize your uh, units, um, and while you build up your overall uh, strategic layer, but the level of customization and the level of personality that your units have is basically nil. All you can do is name the ships. Yeah. Um, so, like, that's a game that feels like it's, you know kind of here but not really in a way that you know i can get as invested as i do in an XCOM or darkest dungeon or battle brothers uh and i think that's 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 a key component here is that there's also these personal strategies that can involve aesthetic mods like it's not just the XCOM thing like i also went and downloaded every goddamn new hairstyle i can because XCOM has terrible hairstyles they're like almost as bad as dragon age inquisition it's just a, a nightmare um yeah, I so BSG like oh the decision not to let large capital ships like Battlestars actually be customizable was oh bad 
because uh, <laughs> like all everyone talks about these ships as if they have different characters and they're good at different things, and yet in the game they're all interchangeable. That's that's no good. But I think your your point, Rowan, like like got me thinking about the sort of the next thing I wanted to hit here, which is the narrative angle. Because I think a lot of these games there's there's sort of two narratives happening side by side. Yes. There's uh, and I think in the best in the best ones there are two narratives. There is the story of the game you're playing, the the campaign, whatever the, the you know, whatever the combination of like setting and events and plot are are happening. And then there's the story of your playthrough of the game, of your team, of your characters, of your of your people. And I think in the best cases. Those two stories are there's room for both stories. In the very best cases, the the stories even interact in some way that they they sort of enrich one another. Um, though that's that's obviously hard for for a lot of reasons, but it's an important component for me. Like again, like Austin and I've been playing XCOM for months, and we've created really absurd and involved stories and relationships among these characters that the game lightly supports, but like it's there for you to play around with. Um, I think a edge case that, that you brought up or sorry, something that you don't, that Rowan, I don't think you quite feel qualifies. Um, but the fact that like banner saga by design has each playthrough sort of be your story. Uh, of the campaign, but uh, but I'm curious, like what what people want from narrative uh, in 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 these games. I wish there were better ways to implement character death into the narrative in a way that felt meaningful beyond just losing access essentially to a resource that you found valuable. I don't think a lot of games have found a good way to square that circle yet. I think there are moments where you feel it, certainly, if there's a moment like, hey, I was playing Battletech and I got, I think it was like one of the first couple of missions where you're liberating a prison camp. And by mm -hmm. that time, oh, and by that time, my best soldier had been Behemoth. And so I send uh, my, I send my mech forward. There's, I'm, I'm feeling good. We've been doing fantastic. And then somebody shoots around at them and it just freak flies into her cockpit and she dies. And that's, that's meaningful, like in a mechanical sense, but then like, there's no way that that feels reflective, like in the actual narrative. And I have no clue how you would really handle it, but you feel the loss of things mechanically a lot in these games, but I don't think there's a lot of integration into the actual um, storytelling in ways that feel um, completely uh, well considered to me. Because I mean, of, uh, just the, the the kind of requirement that it puts on you in terms of sort of like if you think you know game theoretically, like right. How many different kinds of outcomes you could possibly have, and I mean the 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 problem of writing for each of these things just it grows geometrically. But uh, so I kind of understand that and. And it, it, I guess I kind of just want enough, you know, crafted narrative uh, to provide a pretext for what um, I'm really there to to do, which is play these tactical missions. And, and that's where I feel like the expression and uh, of, you know, of player agency and, and and where that that sort of second narrative that you mentioned, Rob, sort of is that's what I'm more interested in. I want to be able to <clears throat> think back or recount a mission and have it you know, read like a, 
you know, Medal of Honor commendation. Um, <clears throat> like that's where I feel like uh, that's what I want personally out of these games. And so, like the, I'm kind of okay with letting the, you know, that that sort of more traditional storytelling side uh, slide a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of want it there. It's nice to have again, you know, sort of a a thematic uh, thread to follow. But um, but for me, yeah, it's much more important. I feel to have that, uh, you know, that the like I want to tell somebody about how this mission went down, uh, sort of feeling. You know what game actually does that well? Is Football Manager. Like it's uh, because it has like twenty years of kind of developing how to respond to players and like the modeling of a media ecosystem. You get a you get a player who gets injured for like four months. It comes at you with a news article that says, you know, your team is facing a selection crisis after your star right winger has gone down with injury. This character or this player might be the one to replace him. And then there are also these youth players that you might need to put up to do that. So it kind of fires back what you might be thinking at you. Um, and that's a thing that like sports games have been doing, you know, ever since they started adding announcers. Uh, they the, the idea is to like contextualize the events, so they so they have you know decades of uh, advantages on that over most other things. But it, they do, do do that well. Um, in terms of narrative, I think this is one of the most interesting splits because yes, you sort of do have this divide between the. Uh, the game's plot and then your personal story as you go through it. But many of these games stumble when they start designing missions around that. And this is an issue I think that XCOM and Battletech especially struggle with, where their embedded missions are so specific and in most cases so difficult compared to other missions because, you know, in battle in a regular battle tech mission you're like facing one lance and then another lance might come in as reinforcements whereas in one of the embedded missions you are facing one lance then three little bits of reinforcements will come in back and forth and maybe you'll have some reinforcements from a random little tank on your side things like that there are all these uh moving parts and i also feel like the designers you know want to do the thing where they say these games are you know these missions are super important to the plot, therefore they should be difficult, and then they become significantly more difficult and in a way that is like unreadable compared to the rest of the game. And so that fucking Battletech mission where you're just slugging it out in that shitty little pool underneath, you know, all of those hills that uh the one where Behemoth always dies, like that's the mission that like I will think of whenever I think of Battletech's plot. Um, and that there's also the idea of Battletech as this, you know, kind of procedurally generated Merc commander thing. Um, another issue with Battletech in this respect is that the missions, the plot missions, are by far the most lucrative. So you are actively preventing yourself from success, which might be a you know house rule that you want to go with, uh, if you don't do those or if you put those off. Uh, and that creates a weird incentive in that game um and then xcom like you know they're all of those plot missions especially in the first one which are you know just have 20 thin men who are all snipers jump on top of you those are like the only ones where i will save scum uh because i hate them so much and you just sort of have to do them <laughs> yeah they're total bullshit yeah that's why yeah 
Uh, I am really conflicted about that, though, because, like, I like the Battletech story missions. I like that they're different from the, uh, like, random contracts. And I get, like, I totally get there is a tension between them. Like, to a degree, it almost feels like two different games that share the same underlying systems, uh, but, like, they feel very very different differently from one another but damn i do there is something to be said for those missions that like they're they're both like a little bit like progress checks level checks almost but there's also something to be said for like a really well scripted mission i mean shit like uh battle tech um the first mission where you face victoria remember that where there's the drop ship and it's a little mining colony and yeah. uh yeah, she shows up, and that duel with her was so tense and spectacular uh, that, like, it's one of the highlights of my um, of my time playing the game. Especially like she lost her temper and like just lit her mech up and just like went way overheat to the point where it was just like glowing, like white hot, and like shut down completely. And that's how she lost. Oh, it was great shit. It was great stuff. I loved it. Uh, and I think there's there's good reasons to create stuff like that because it allows you to create for some certain challenges that maybe are tougher to have generated out of like a semi-random mission structure. Um, but I do get like, but I, I am totally sensitive to that tension of they also don't really behave like any other missions in the same game. Uh, and they require almost completely different logic. But I think they I think they carry it off a hell of a lot better than XCOM. Uh generally has. It's such a delicate balance too because I mean you do have heights like you know that moment in BattleTech you mentioned Rob. But if you don't quite get there, I always kind of have this feeling of you know okay, story missions coming up so I've got to do this fake thing in the middle of, you know, actually managing this uh this this lance or this uh the squad of mercenaries or what have you. Uh, so uh, when they, when they don't quite hit that uh, kind of uh, brilliant design, yeah. it just, it feels it's, it, it just feels like you're tripping over them and, and they become kind of uh, just a chore. And, and, and just, and because it's so distinct uh, feeling from the rest of the game, I find, yeah, it's just kind of like this weird, okay, well let's uh, the parents are here. We'll uh, you know, take a picture and smile <laughs> sort of feeling to them that uh that that doesn't mesh with the rest of the game or or, or why i'm really there yeah it's a it's a complicated thing because the missions in battletech are usually fairly well designed it's just and like one of my big problems with the random missions is that they don't have that level of detail but you know my preference is that um the random missions become uh you know more interesting and get situations where stuff like that can happen not necessarily as much detail as you know victoria just going wild and you know burning her whole mac but um the uh the concept that uh these missions can have events that feel semi-embedded and i think that darkest dungeon is a good or bad example here because i think darkest dungeon is at its absolute worst when it's not randomized at all and this is a couple of the uh 
this is almost all the later stuff. The Darkest Dungeon itself is like this, and I think that's the worst part of the game. And the Crimson Court expansion is like this, and I think that's the other worst part of the game. Um, like, they're, they don't have this kind of, like, this can be different each time feeling. Um, other the better Battletech missions, like that Victoria one, because it's got such a sort of wide-ranging... Uh, maneuverability aspect to it you can come at it from two or three different angles i think it has that feeling like this mission can go a bunch of different ways and that's good um but like some of the other missions like that smithen mission like that's really intense but there's really only one way to play it and that always leads to like this really destructive war of attrition um, and that's cool, but it's also like, oh, I did just lose two of my best pilots because that's the yeah. only way I can ever do this damn thing. Um, but like, this is one of the attentions that this this whole subgenre is built on. Is like all of these games pretty much have things that are really good and things that are really annoying. And I think BattleTech would be a worse game without the embedded missions. But the embedded missions also lead to problems. Heather, I have a question for you because I've just started playing uh, Valkyria Chronicles 4. Yes, hello. And I feel like it really wants me to connect to these characters. Like, and I'm sorry, to be clear, I'm not just, I'm, not, I'm talking about my characters as like tactical units. Like, yes. believe me, I am all in on Raz and Raz. <laughs> um, you know, as, as I put it to Austin last night, wow. Raz, Raz is fighting fascism and PC culture, uh, and he seems to be defeating both. He's uh, he he's he's honestly himself. <laughs> J- yeah, Raz is always just perfectly Raz. Um, but yeah, so like, I like a lot of the characters in the game. I identify with that stuff, but that doesn't necessarily feed back into what I'm doing on the tactical layer. But what strikes me is the game tries so hard to differentiate all these characters doing the same stuff that you saw in uh, Valkyria Chronicles one, where it's like, and they even try, I think they're even doing a slightly better job in uh, Valkyria Chronicles four because the, because the quirks on the characters aren't quite so weird. Like you have someone be like, you know, if she's near a fallen soldier, she's reminded of her son who died in the war, and she takes, like, a penalty to some of her stats. That's, like, that's a cool little beat. Works way better than, for instance, uh, City Dweller in Valkyria Chronicles 1, where, like, if a character stands on pavement, uh, they just kick ass. Um, but even with all those little character notes and these story beats... I don't know that they feel like my characters. I don't know that I feel like I'm having any stories about these folks. No, I think that's I think that's a pretty valid thing. I think a lot of the systems in Valkyria Chronicles uh, specifically are meant to funnel you towards the crafted narrative moments, right? So, hey, I want all those interesting potentials. I want, you know, I want Nico to have a really good defensive potential because she's one of my, you know, she's one of my best scouts. I put her to a lot of use. She goes forward a lot, but sometimes maybe she's getting shot at too much and I want to mitigate that. Well, I know that there are ways for me to maybe get more potentials for her, those, you know, those special triggered abilities, if I 
unlock her squad story and spend time with her. Um, but it's not the same as building a story, you know, through your gameplay. I think I love that system because I like the, the moment to moment stuff in Valkyria Chronicles a lot in terms of jumping down to that third person uh, sort of active perspective, I think gives that game a lot of drive and kind of in, in certain ways makes me feel for the scenarios that the soldiers are going through a little bit more than just if I was a detached, all-knowing commander in the sky. Um, but I do think you're right to say that uh, that's a case of a game where characters are very much defined um, and then once you get into that tactical space, they, they end up being, um, they're, they're less individuals and more, um, and this sounds, I guess this sounds really cynical, uh, because I still do love this game. Um, but they feel more like bodies that you're just moving about and not, um, you know, if I lose a scout in that game, first off, I have to be trying for it. The game's pretty generous about unit loss. Um, but if I lose a scout in that game, I don't, you know, if I have a lower level scout, maybe they have less health, but it doesn't feel as, you know, as like as much of a meaningful loss because it doesn't really fundamentally alter the way that I'm sort of engaging with the space. Um, you kind of choose your favorites based upon like how you like them in story beats or something. It, it's strange. I still like it, though. Also, I don't think you sounded cynical there. I think you just sounded like the exact sort of commander I won <laughs> no, leading the I, assault on the Soviet Reich. No, That's I don't want to be that. Just, just, yep, just bodies. So all, all Heather sees, just resources. Just all the time. Just, uh, it, it definitely can feel like that in certain ways, at, at least in the case of com combat, not um, feeling as, uh, like the choreo, the raw choreography is interesting, but the stories you don't, there's not as much potential for making, um, stories of your own. So I feel like this is a good segue into the edge cases, um, which we can talk about for a little bit because there are a lot of games that are sort of demonstrate the permeability of the genre here, um, at JRPGs, but specifically Tactical JRPGs are like at the core of that because, like, in many ways, Final Fantasy Tactics, Disgaea, like, these things fit this genre, except for the part where they don't have, um, like, a real big, uh, uh, base building component, although sometimes they do. Um, but you get procedurally generated characters, you develop them, you do all these things with, uh, uh, you know, developing them in the same way that you would in an XCOM, but they don't feel like they quite are at the same level. And I think a lot of that is that they have so many embedded personalities, so many, you know, individual characters that already exist. And in a game like Final Fantasy Tactics, they're so much better than every other character in the game that they just sort of dominate it. And, like, I don't know. I find that a really interesting thing because that's an influence on this genre, but I don't think it's a defining thing about it. I'll generalize for a second to suggest that that's part of a broader schism that you see between some of the design philosophies, uh, East versus West. Um, I think Western design broadly tends to focus more on systemic things. Um, the raw numbers that are happening. Uh, whereas I think 
Eastern games, uh, you know, Japanese RPGs and everything really emphasize their narratives. And that kind of manifests in the way that they play where, you know, a Western game, like you, you get XCOM here because it's like, they really want to stress logistics. Um, and maybe let those, it's very ludocentric in the sense of like, we can let the numbers kind of speak for themselves. Whereas I think, um, I think the design priority in the East has always skewed in regardless of genre towards um, telling like a very deliberately crafted tale and sort of de-emphasizing the variables that would potentially get in the way of what that story is actually trying to achieve. Yeah. And with JRPGs, this is definitely the case. Um, there are some Western ones like this, which uh, Jagged Alliance is you know, the original XCOM from 1994 is, I think, um, you know, fits entirely within this genre. Like, it's the same sort of structure. It's uh, uh, not, that shouldn't, that's not really a controversial thing, but then the other defining tactics, Western tactics game of the 90s, the Jagged Alliance 1 and 2, um, those have created characters. Now, they're like 50 or 60 of them in each game and they can die and you can replace them with other ones and you develop those the same way. So they're very much on the borderline here. Um, but uh, or they're very much on the borderline in that respect and they don't usually have the sort of base building component. Um, but like they also have um, a thing that I think that some of the tactical JRPGs don't have where uh, specifically Jagged Alliance 2. Oh no, the first one is like this too, but um, they have a specific geography where you're on a contiguous map of an entire island or an entire nation. And the like direction you attack and you go through like which direction you're coming from and where the enemies are going to be placed is randomized and you know but you can sort of strategize around this in a way that creates by not having a procedural map, it creates a feeling that it's a more procedural or strategic decision that you make in them. And I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about here. It's not, it's not a thing that I want to say is definitely good or definitely bad, but it's like, it's hard to talk about, you know, these classic games without mentioning Jagged Alliance, which is so close and in some ways better. But I don't know. You can see where some of the divergences still end up with surprising similarities um i you know the idea i think you see in you know crpgs or something the idea of going back to a town or going back you know mass effect going back to the normandy that's a very micro very light never completely realized version of going back to your XCOM base or something uh, yeah it, it, it's there in in certain um kind of vestigial parts but then takes on its own sort of sort of purpose and if you'd like to hear us talk a little bit more about that idea the podcast we did on pillars of eternity and infinity engine sale combat gets into that a bunch um magnificent synergy i know Love right three ma rpg um, is going to happen um, and this ties into something that i want to discuss a little bit just regarding other directions for the genre uh because you guys it's like it's like waving the cape to the bull. Somebody brought up Jagged Alliance too, uh, and so I'm just gonna slide in and say like, I like this is this is a type of game I love, but I have yet to find the game that exerts the hold on my imagination that Jagged Alliance two 
does like did and still does uh, to an extent because Jagged Alliance too. It is yes, it is sort of a merc management business sim, but also like it's a game of like leading a, leaving and leading an insurgency, uh, you know, across an entire country and like slowly like you know working your way in from the less secured outskirts toward like the metropolitan heart of a dictatorship and like how that both escalates the difficulty, but also completely changes the terrain in which you're fighting. Um, that is a really cool thing. And nobody's really done that ever since. And I mean, Jagged Alliance two is a special game, but come on, we've got, we've had like, you know, 20-some years ago to school on it. Uh, where's where's my spiritual successor? I think there is one coming. I not, not from Jagged Alliance. Rage? No, I th- yeah, I think there is, like, an, another new Jagged Alliance coming very soon that, you know, I have no reason to trust it, but um, who knows? Maybe this one will be the hit. Um, but it, it, this all, Jagged Alliance 2 also goes back to, I think, what... I don't remember if it was Ian or Heather was talking about the... Uh, uh, it was Heather who was talking about death. Um, the uh, idea that like these mercs have these embedded personalities, and they're not huge. We're not talking like full-on fire emblem, but they have their very good little barks. Uh, they have people that they don't like, and they have people that they do like. And when you get Raven and Spider, which was like you know the core of my team because they were two of the night ops people. They become bestest friends, and they, you know, start freaking out when the other one dies, and you're like, oh my god, I have to reload. Raven is so sad now. Um, so, like, what having embedded characters is not necessarily, I think, a thing that ruins this style of game, and I don't see any reason that you couldn't have a Jagged Alliance that maybe had a little bit more base building and therefore became, uh, you know, fully within this genre except for the embedded characters uh that that can work i think it still needs to have the feeling that these things are developing somewhat systemically uh like a fire emblem has where you know you put the characters next to each other they become friends over the course of their fighting that's neat that's a system like all those things are written they're embedded but it's also a thing that you feel like you control and it's not just sort of happening to you so i think those things can fit within this genre What about what about y'all? Like, I mean, so for me, I just I just want my uh, open ended campaign with a strategy layer and a great tactical layer that f- feed into each other uh, really gracefully. Doesn't seem like too much to ask. I think it's a easy thing for somebody to deliver, uh, and I, and I'm sure lots of people can just whip that up. Uh, but I, I'm curious what when, when you guys sort of consider the space. What's your wish list? What what's the thing that you're sitting there being like? Hmm. Could have used could have used more of this. Yeah, man, that's a that's a it's a, a tough question. I mean, I feel like um, you know it, it's an interesting space because it sits adjacent to so many uh, genres. So you know you start getting into uh, you know I think like Heather mentioned um, you know all of a sudden too much a. Uh, uh, on the character and you kind of find yourself in RPG territory. And then, uh, you know, when things turn into uh, less about the people and more about like, say a persistent battle group, all of a sudden we're talking about war games. Um, so it's, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough needle to thread, I think. 
So one quick thing that I wanted to mention, because we're wrapping it up, and this is one of the most interesting games to talk about in terms of this, that I think is that uh, thematically uh, there's a lot of different directions to go in. Like if, if we can say that sports management games fit in this, then we're not just talking tactical combat. If we say that FTL is a progenitor here, we're not talking about a game that combat is centered. Um, so one of the games that I think even though it doesn't fit because it doesn't have base building and it has embedded characters, I still think that it really fits and is a very interesting direction for the genre to go is Invisible Ink. Um, that's a stealth game. There's a little bit of combat. It's very XCOM-like in how it looks, like in how it plays. You have cover and stuff, but it's built around sneaking and it's not built around murdering. You murder people, things start going real bad for you. Uh, like the guns in that game have three bullets total and then they're useless. So like being able to look at different themes and look at, you know, different structures as well. Invisible Ink is way shorter. It's like a five to eight hour campaign that you're going to lose a whole bunch. It's much more on the roguelike FTL end than the, the XCOM 3040 hour campaign. So yeah, I think that, uh, exploring different themes and looking at different ways that you can integrate, challenges based on movement without it necessarily being like all entirely headshots nothing against headshots but this is a really interesting direction for the genre to go and i think invisible ink is a game that even though it's very much on the outskirts i want to welcome within this genre i think i just want the puzzles i think i just want that moment of look like i I think the context can change i think the the systems for combat can change, even if it is combat, right? But I want, I think the thing that draws me to tactics games very often is surveying a field and then figuring out exactly where I need to go and making, you know, it's one of the, like, that's why stealth is such an interesting genre to me. Stealth is just nothing, but stealth, stealth games are just Tetris, except you can move around the space more. You have to fit into the right spot. And, and, and tactics games are like that too, except I think there's something more satisfying. I think, I think you can experiment with combat, non-combat, but I think the thing you want from a tactics game is to have that moment where you're looking around and then like, like you're like you're reading a where's waldo book you see it and that's it right there and you got it and i think that's uh, there's a lot of ways to facilitate it but i think that's the thing i think for me i think what i uh <laughs> i think maybe all of us as uh, strategy gamers uh like the fantasy that we kind of buy into is like uh this is my job it's a hard job and I'm good at it and that's kind of what i want out of these games i want to feel like i'm very good at this job that i that I have for the duration of my time playing it. Not perfect. It's got to be a hard job, but I'm, but I, but I am very good at it. And I kind of just want the game to make me feel like I'm a very clever boy. Okay. I need actually want to throw one more up at the buzzer uh, for things I want. And this one, I have no idea how you implement this satisfyingly because like it is an artifact of a design that people have gone away from for a lot of reasons. I've talked about this before. Original XCOM. Sending people out to just get killed is part of that game. Like, (laughs) a given squad in the mid-game and certainly in the late game, like, there are a couple rookies tossed in there whose primary job is to go out and catch bullets. Bodies, man. Bodies. Yeah. And this is kind of what, like, 
a lot of these games, as they move toward the, like, it's a slightly more manageable scale, you're moving four to six units and not, like, ten to twenty, each of those units becomes much more important. And so, like, you begin, like, the game is about preventing sacrificing any of them. If a mech goes down Battletech, that's bad. Uh, If a soldier goes down an XCOM, also pretty disastrous. But, like, original XCOM, big part of that was, like... You know, hey, uh, what's your name? Adams? Adams, whatever the hell. Uh, you go out there, you go walk into that, like, darkened, <laughs> that, that, that darkened farm field and just see what's out there. And uh, we'll be backing you up. Don't worry about it. Like, I love that shit. And it's a hard thing to square with that, that sort of tension and that sort of, like, immediacy and brutality of, like, death and using like death tactically in some ways oh, i would love to see that worked in somewhere uh but i'm not sure how compatible that is with the way these the way these games work because like arbitrary death is xcom 2 vanilla showed not fun rob go on long war 2 <laughs> okay like you you just you're, you're begging for you say i want to play long war give me long war give me long war 2 Okay, I should probably play long, I should probably play Long War Two. Yes, you should definitely do it right now in the middle of reviewing season. Yes, good start. Timing. That shit up. It will not take up the next four months of your life. All right. Uh, any closing thoughts or topics, uh, Rowan? Did, was there anything else you wanted to address before we wrap it up here? I think that mostly covers it. Oh, yeah. One last thing is that. Uh, this sort of goes along with the uh, things that we want. Other than Mountain Blade and I think Valkyria Chronicles, almost none of the games we mentioned are real time. And I, I, am I right about Mountain Blade? That's a that's a blind spot for me. It's not a tactics game, really. Okay. Yeah, I don't think that really. Yeah, it kind yeah, of doesn't count. That was yeah, just I mean, it would be a, an extreme edge case, I would say. Yeah. yeah. There is no particular reason that you could not have these games be a slow paced real time game, and I guess FTL is. Um, like, I love turn-based games, but there's nothing wrong with a good real-time game that would make this work. Um, I'm sorry, XCOM Apocalypse kind of fucked that up. Uh, that's a game that did some really interesting things and did them really badly. But we, we can definitely have slow-paced real-time games within this field, and I would not be opposed to that in any way whatsoever. I think that's tough. Like I, I agree, but I think the the thing that is tough is um, the minute you introduce real time, you're introducing issues of core like physical competence and like muscle memory uh, to sort of react appropriately to things, and I think that is tough to square with the puzzle aspect of like how shall I use these beloved characters like. Choosing to put a beloved character into a risky situation to, you know, go die well or go or go be a hero, that's one thing. Um, having a beloved character eat shit because you activated the wrong control group and sort of misclicked, uh, which is definitely how that would go for me, at least in a real-time version, uh, feels slightly differently. I think the closest you're going to come is... Uh, Probably, the, I think what Ian sort of noted on this on this document, which is uh, simultaneous resolution, uh, like in Frozen Synapse. 
Yeah, I mean, I you would have to reshape some of the you know uh, models and goals and whatever. But like, I'm not necessarily with Heather on the whole puzzle thing. Like, that can be great, but I also am kind of with you on the you know let's throw some cannon fodder out there yeah. and real time would probably be better for that. Another major thing with these games is that they tend to be slow paced. And if you had them be real time, they might be slightly faster paced and that would not be a terrible thing because I spent like 200 hours on darkest dungeon when it came to switch this year, in addition to the 200 I've spent over the last two years. So, you know, so it goes. Kohan three. It's tactics now. <laughs> That's 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 my pitch. All right. All right. I like it. Sure. Uh, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. You can follow Rowan on Twitter at Rowan Kaiser, Heather at TransGamerThink, and Ian at Iboudreau. Uh, and you can follow me at Rob Zachney. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Three Moves Ahead. Until then, for Rowan, for Heather, for Ian, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.